What time is it? Hello and welcome to the Bible Dig Godcast, a fun-filled exploration of archaeology and the Bible. And now, here are your hosts, author J.S. Earls and attorney Peter A. Papoutsis. All right, well, we are now in Genesis chapter 11, dealing with the Tower of Babel. Now the whole earth had one language and few words. That's interesting. And as men immigrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and butamen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, least we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the sons of men had built. It's very interesting now. We're not talking about the sons of God anymore. We're now talking about the sons of man. Right, yeah. Very interesting, very interesting. When he says he came down, do you think, what do you, what do you think he means by that? Um, I think the, the, the general consensus is is that the Lord... I mean, you know, he didn't—he didn't come down like in a spaceship or anything like that. No. If that's what. You mean. No, well, it's just interesting that it says he came down, not that he looked down or whatever. You know, it's interesting that in the, again, there's two conventional ways, very conventional ways of looking at that. Is one is a literary convention, which is this is a literary or poetic convention of the Bible, that uh, you know, uh, what's the word kind of anthropomorphizes right. God. He came down that he physically came down you know you know god doesn't need to do that because god's god god is everywhere right. so that's just a literary um technique to say that god is you know uh, there among the the people of or, babylon yeah. the land of Shema, and just observing what they're doing specifically the o- turned his attention to it correct correct absolutely uh the other convention which kind of goes back to what we were talking about the whole sons of God thing is, is that um, there's another convention that's used that when God came down, that meant that God's angels or messengers came down to physically look at what was going on with the, the, the people there in the land of Shinar in the land of Babylon. Although that that second convention, I'm not very keen on because again, you know, God's omnipotent. Why, why would you need angels to come down and to look, for all this stuff. Unless he was wanting the angels to learn something from it. True, true. So both conventions are out there. and the, So one's a literary convention, one's, one is a, just a, a textual convention that, that ties back to the sons of God or to angels as being messengers. And again, it's a very normal convention to use because again, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, what we translate as angel literally means in the original languages as messengers. Mes- right. Right. So it, 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 that's that's what I think that meant. Again, if you want to go into like the, you know, the X-Files form and, you know, <laughs> no, God, no, that's okay. God, you know, jumped into his, his mothership and came down to take a look at us. That's that's up to you. That's not it. That's I don't subscribe to that. But I do know some people that do. So, uh, OK, not yeah. hating, just saying that, you know. Yeah. OK. 
verse 6, and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Verse 7. Now keep verse 6 and verse 7 okay, in your mind here, because immediately from verse 6, we jump into verse 7, where, where God says, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. Verse 8. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Okay, verse 9, remember that, they, they stopped building the city. Right. I don't know if, if it necessarily said building, stop building the tower, but if you're, if you're leaving the city, if you're right. stopping the city, then you're probably stopped building the tower as well. Number, uh, verse 9, therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. All right, so let's stop there for a sec. Go from verse 6 to verse 7. And there's a little bit of a disconnect here because, you know, God said, behold, they, meaning us, the, 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 the humans, are right. one people and they, ha- and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Verse 7, come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Why? What's going on here between verses 6 and 7? Why is God ostensibly, apparently, uh, either concerned or kind of upset that we're doing this? What's going on here, Jeff? Let me throw that over to you and see what your thoughts are. Uh, Well, I'll say two things. Uh, um, One of the things is that they're um, kind of breaking their relationship with him. They're not not, going to be dependent on him anymore. and uh, the other thing, which I definitely wanted to mention, is uh, especially because we don't necessarily cover it in this, but you kind of, especially at the end of what you just read, it definitely uh, relates to it. Is the, the whole thing with the city and everything, you know, let alone the tower, is uh, kind of an act of disobedience because he told them when they left the ark to go spread to the rest of the world, and instead of doing that, they were. Um, staying together when he told them to go out and uh, right and, and and then basically he still because he's god he still gets his way anyways because he confuses their languages so they can't work together anymore and they can't do those things and then and then scatters them abroad uh which is what he told them to do to begin with immediately in the story there's a there's an immediate sense of disobedience right and uh, and and again, I, we we touched on this earlier, but it, it's I think the, the the disobedience is very clear in the text because they're called the sons of man. Right. They're not called the sons of God anymore. Yeah. Um, and then I think it, it it ties into what you said. They're they're not listening to him. They haven't gone forth and scattered upon the earth, you know, to repopulate the earth. They just congregated in this one little place. And verse six is actually very interesting. Because it says, you know, that basically that we, that there's that 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 there's nothing uh, stopping us now from doing whatever we want to do. That 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 it says, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. 
there is no there is no connection whatsoever to God in verse six. This is all verse six is all man's works, man's doing, man's achievements. And God even says they 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 they'll do whatever they want now. Now that they're together, now that they're organized, and and the the implication there is from the other verses is that whatever they're going to do will not involve anything with me, will not involve me at all. Uh, and so that there's this this there's this tone set right from the beginning, like you said, of disobeying, disobedience. And if I may be so bold, um, because of the very act of what they're doing in building the tower, and I'll explain this later on, of rebellion against God. I think probably, you know, after the flood, that a lot of the people who obviously are going to remember that or remember stories, at this point, they're probably living out of fear. Yeah. No, they they are living out of fear. Um, And because, you know, uh, textually... This is this is after the flood now, and they're they're living out of fear and not just you know staying together you know strength in numbers type of thing, but they don't want to have a flood ever again. They don't want to have God destroy them uh, in in a massive worldwide flood ever again, and uh, and and I think that's the basis for them making such a big tower. Right. Like the Tower of Babel. In fact, we, we, we have confirmation of this in, I believe, Josephus's Antiquities of the Jews. It's there in the very beginning chapters. I want to say like chapter two, chapter three, where he even says, he, he just comes right out and says it, that they made the tower or Nimrod, you know, uh, right. uh, told the people uh, to make the tower. And to make it so high that the floodwaters would never cover the tower, that right. they would have a place of safety. Um, and also Josephus goes further on and says that, and, th- and this is the parallel with, um, with Gilgamesh, is that Nimrod, according to Josephus, wanted to take vengeance uh, upon God or wanted to take revenge upon God for the deaths of his forefathers right. that were killed in the, in the great flood. And to do that, he uh, not just built the, the tower, but said that every good thing that happened in the city of Babylon and everything that, that they were able to accomplish was because of him right. and because of them, because of what they were able to do. And what you see with uh, with Josephus saying this in the Antiquities of the Jews, is uh, this is what's called in 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 Jewish uh, thinking and theology. This is called a midrash. This is an interpretation that is pro- more more likely than not, obviously, from what is being talked about on verse six, because when you read verse six, uh, it says, "Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they." will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So you have at the beginning of the chapter the people called the sons of God. You have in verse 6 this uh this um uh violation of God's commandment to go forth, you know, to scatter upon the earth and to repopulate it. No, they are one people. They have one language meaning that they're they're together. Right. They they violated 
uh, God's commandment, the Noahic covenant that was made after the flood uh, to go forth and, and, and scatter upon the earth. They haven't done that. That's why they're one people in one language. Right. And, uh, and, and this is what they will do. This is what they want done, that nothing will be impossible for them. Okay. This harkens back to, uh, what we, uh, uh, have read in scripture that with man, everything is impossible, but with God, nothing is impossible. Well, here the inverse is now being said of them, right? That nothing will be impossible to them. So this entire chapter uh, on the Tower of Babel is disobedience, defiance, and rebellion. Uh, and we see this as the understanding of the ancient Jews with uh, Josephus saying that this is exactly what was going on with Nimrod and the people of Nimrod and the people of the land of Shinar, that they're just doing all of this, one, to make sure that they never get destroyed by God ever again, shaking their fist at God, building this tower so big that God would never be able to destroy them. That's hubris. That's right. that's complete and utter hubris. Um and that it has, and that they do not, that they do not need to depend upon God. Look at what they're doing. They built a city. They built a tower. Did God do any of that for them? According to Nimrod, no. Right. So, so this entire chapter is a chapter of, of disobedience, disregard for God, and rebellion against God. A lot of people have criticized this chapter and have thrown questions in there because they say, well. You know, God did all this, but he doesn't say why he did this. Why did he confound their languages and scatter them abroad? You know, it never says in here that they did anything wrong, that they that, that the word sin or iniquity is never used in this chapter. And what I would say and what all the ancient Jewish theologians and people do in the Midrash and the Christian theologians and church fathers would say the entire chapter uh, is a chapter on rebellion. The entire chapter is a chapter on sin. Uh you don't need to have the word. Just look at what they're doing. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and it's clear as day. Yep. I agree. Yeah. So um, now the so that's the that's the theological portion of it, and it goes back to what you said that you know that they disobeyed God. They didn't scatter across the the earth to repopulate it. So God is doing this for them, and to scatter them to force them out, he had to confound their languages. He had to force them to do what he told them to do. So they could have either taken it the easy way or they're going to take it the hard way. Unfortunately, they're taking it the hard way to do what God wants them to do. Right. Um, so that's the theological and the textual basis um, you know, of chapter 11. Uh, and, and before I move on, I wanted to throw it back to you to see if you had anything more to add to that. Uh, no, you know, I was just going to say it's just one of the things that it, it, it reminds me of is uh you know just i mean and so many of us deal with this um but you know, just the whole idea and why jesus says it's you know so difficult for a rich person to enter into heaven and to and to do because i mean it's all about control and it's all about it's not about oh money is evil it's about us wanting to provide for ourselves and and not to be thankful to God and not to be grateful and not really not really having that relationship with Him because because we can do everything for ourselves and so then we right. we basically just get God out of the situation and that, and that's you know essentially what they were doing there too is is they were just kind of taking God out of the equation 
um, just because they were so scared to die or whatever. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's, right. you know, it, it's just, it's the same old, it's the same kind of human condition and everything, you know, that in, in their time, in Jesus' time, in our time. I mean, it, it's it's this, you know, this desire for control that um, that we have. And uh, I was also going to say, and, and this is, I, and I don't know if you have anything to say about this, but one of the things that it reminded me of just when I was um, doing the research for it and just thinking of it, it was the, uh, and especially just that aspect of obedience was just like in the Bible where it says um, obedience is better than sacrifice. And, yes. and sometimes, it, and, and not, I, I don't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily say in this case, but um, sometimes it's actually easier to just obey than to uh, make some sort of a sacrifice or whatever. Um, but we just, yes. we just have this thing in us that it's just, man, it is, it's so difficult for us to obey and to, and to humble ourselves and to, Very look, hard. you know, for us to look at ourselves as, you know, less than, uh, than what we think we are, which is not what we really are. Right. No, no, I, I agree a hundred percent. There's actually a very famous uh, passage I want to read real quick, and I won't take a lot of time on it. Um, let me see. Uh, I want to read this. This is actually from when you said that everything you just said reminded me of the 51st Psalm, which is the which is a psalm that David wrote after uh, he sinned by, you know, killing uh, who is it? Beersheba's husband. Right. And it's verse 17 of Psalm 51. And this is a penitent psalm. This is the most traditional penitent psalm in all of Christianity, all of Judaism. Um, and the part that, that um, reminded me of this psalm is what you said. Uh, and it starts, and it's in verses 16 and 17 of, of Psalm 51. For thou hast no delight in sacrifice, were I to give a burnt offering thou wouldest not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. That's what God has always wanted. So when you say it's easier in some cases to be obedient, that's exactly what David was saying in that psalm. And that's exactly what God has always wanted from like the very beginning was to have this relationship between us uh, and him and himself. Uh, and, and what we see in the tower of Babel, um, story in chapter 11 is a complete rupture. Uh, you don't even have, uh, uh, a, a pretense of a relationship anymore. You don't even have, uh, uh, you know, n any kind of nominal, uh, uh, type of relationship with God. There's none there now, right? It's completely ruptured. Sons of men, what we can do, there's nothing for us. Uh, we are staying together. We, we congregated into one city, one tower, made it huge so that the floodwaters would never overtake it. Nimrod saying, you know, according to Josephus, you know, uh, uh, this was me. I did all this. Right. This was us. We did all this. And we will take vengeance upon you, God, for destroying our forefathers. And we will build this city on the plains of Shinar, and we will build this tower 
so high that even your floodwaters will never overtake us again. Not just turning their backs on God, but shaking their fist at God and saying, not only will you never do this to us again, but we don't want you in our lives at all. We can do this on our own. Thank you and goodbye. So this entire chapter is the culmination of of the fall, of this rupture of of communion between God and humanity that finally culminates uh, in a complete and utter rupture in chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel story, which is actually very interesting because if you look at textually the book of Genesis, when, when you leave, when you're done with chapter 11, that's when the, the story of, of Abraham begins. You know, this whole different story now about humanity and the early patriarchs. And it's, it's, it's always been very fascinating how uh, ancient Jewish and Christian writers always saw this division between the first 11 chapters of Genesis and the rest of Genesis. That, that the first 11 chapters of Genesis was the story, meaning the beginning story of the fall, the rupture, the, uh, the disobedience, the creation of a world completely and utterly against God, uh, God's cleansing of the world with a flood, and then finally the world, after having seen all this, gone through all this, finally still saying to God, nope, not going to do it, we're not going to follow you, Turn, <laughs> it turns his back and we turn our backs on God. Kind of mimics, kind of mimics um, the whole story of the Jewish people in, in uh, Egypt. In right. the Exodus story, right, and, and and crossing the Red Sea. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I saw, you know, uh, all of the miracles that were happening, uh, good and bad, especially with the angel of death, yeah, the pillar of fire, the pillar of of of, of or the whirl, whirlwind in the in the in uh, right. the morning, the pillar of fire at night, manna from heaven, the the rock bringing forth water. If I saw all those things. Man, I would not be disobedient to God. I'd be like, you know what? I I know that there's a God, and I'm not Him, and I'm going to be obedient to Him. Yeah. But that was, but see, the 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 underlying story of the first eleven chapters of Genesis, as well as the culmination of this story in the eleventh chapter of Genesis that we see with the Tower of Babel, that we see with Nimrod or Nimrod, is not an issue of disbelief. I want to say that again. It's not an issue of disbelief. Yeah. Nowhere in these stories do any of these people not believe in the existence of God. Right. What you see in these stories, especially with the Nimrod story or the Tower of Babel story, is not a disbelief in God. It is a rejection of God. Yeah, we know you're there. Right. And, and guess what? We don't want you. If they didn't believe God was there and that God could take judgment upon the world with water or fire or whatever, right. why would they be doing this? Why would they be building a tower that would never uh, uh, be destroyed in a flood ever again? Why would they do that? They're doing it not because they don't believe that there's a God. They're doing it because they don't want to believe in him. Right. Very big distinction. And, and, and that's what you always see in these stories is you never see – what we call today atheism, what you see in these stories is what we call anti-theism. Yeah. So that's the theological portion of that. There is a very interesting, uh, to get back to the very basis of Bible dig, dun, 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 yeah. dun, uh, there is a very interesting um, archaeological aspect of this. What we have here with the Tower of Babel, there has been, uh, quite interestingly, 
uh, some really good archaeological work on not just the, the, the Tower of Babel, but many little Towers of Babel around the Tower of Babel and where it would be uh, and where the land of Shinar is and you know uh, how this interplays with Babylonian culture and history, especially like what we see later on in the, in the book of Daniel. Mm-hmm. There's actually a mention of that in the book of Daniel. Um, so what we have here is that it, it, to go into the ancient record, uh, specifically with like the Greek historian Herodotus. So this is now a historical record outside of the Bible. And the Greek historian Herodotus, in visiting and in looking at the land of Babylon, the city of Babylon, talks about a, uh, a, a great and magnificent temple in Babylon called the Temple of Belus, B-E-L-U-S, Temple of Belus. And the reason why it's called the Temple of Belus is because it was dedicated to the Babylonian god Belus. Uh, and, and Herodotus says that this temple had a, uh, a, a place of prominence in ancient Babylon, in the city of Babylon. And some historians then started to see that maybe the Temple of Belus was really the, tum- the, the Tower of Babel or the Tower of Nimrod, which is another name for it. Right. Um, as we started to come into the more modern age with more archaeological uh, tools at our disposal and actually going there and doing archaeological work there, which I might add you can't do now. You can't do today at all. And the reason why you can't do that at all today is because of the uh, uh, the wars that we had over there. Because uh, Babylon is in Iran. I'm sorry, in Iraq, in Iran. Um, right. And uh, we've already fought two wars over there. We're actually still fighting one war. So you can't go over there these days uh, and, and do really good archaeological excavations anymore. But we did do them in the past, before the wars broke out. And we were able to find um, a, a, a reference in some of the ancient um, Sumerian texts that made reference to the Bris Nimrud. Uh, and the Bris Nimrud uh, is, is translated as the Tower of Nimrod. Uh, some other names that have been attached to it, and again, these are extra-biblical texts, uh, and these are later Babylonian texts, but not, not Sumerian and clay tablets, but Babylonian clay tablets, so these are a little bit after the Sumerians, that make mention of a Tower of Nebu that they associated, the Babylonians at that time associated with the Bris Nimrud, which is associated with uh, the Tower of Babel. Now, in the Sumerian texts, the clay tablets uh, of Sumeria, there is a, a reference to this Bris Nimrud uh, that is located in the ancient city of Brasipa, B-O-R-S-I-P-P-A, and it's about uh, w- what we've been able to calculate modern in modern times, about seven miles southwest of the uh, modern town of Hilal, H-I-L-L-A-H, uh, and uh, Hilal uh, does occupy uh, a part of the ancient city of Babylon. So um, 
Geographically and archaeologically, this Bris Nimrud, oh, and linguistically, obviously, Tower of Nimrod, right. um, all uh, makes reference to an actual physical structure that was there. So this is not just something that the Bible just you know, made up out of whole cloth. There's extra-biblical sources that actually talk about a physical tower. Right. And uh, now the story of Noah leaving the ark and and going and or not Noah but his his progeny going to the land of Shinar is actually talked about in the Babylonian uh, I'm sorry in the Sumerian clay tablets and Noah is called Ut Napashatim so that's Ut U T dash Napashatim N A P I S H T I M so Napashatim Noah there's a little bit of a linguistic uh, 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 correlation there. And it says that the descendants of Noah, you know, did go into this land of Shinar and that they created uh, this, this uh, structure called a uh, Zikwa Ratu. So it's Z-I-Q-Q-U-R-A-T-U. So Zikwa Ratu, which we get our modern English word of ziggurat. Uh, and the reason, you know, we have this word is because it's a descriptive word, ziggurat, because it has, it, 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 it connected the Tower of Babel as being a massive ziggurat. So not just a tower. You know, when we think of a tower, we're thinking of like maybe the like the Tower of Pisa or maybe the the Washington Monument or something like that. But it wasn't that. Because of the name ziggurat, we know that this was a uh, a pyramid-like shape, but that had uh, uh, stairs that would go up at an angle on all sides. So one side the stairs would go up, the other side the stairs would go up further, the other side the stairs would go up even further. Um, and so that that's how the 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 Tower of Babel and other miniature ziggurats that we've been able to archaeologically find um, in I in Iraq and parts of Iran uh, have always been uh, found. Now there there is um, some, uh, how do you say it? Controversy? Yeah, controversy. Yeah. That, uh, that the Tower of Babel didn't exist. But there actually was a guy, and I forget the guy's name, that actually spent a, a, a good amount of time trying to find this, this structure. And there's a wonderful uh, History Channel documentary on this that I would advise people, I guess it could be like one of my early recommendations for people to go see. It's yeah. on YouTube. Uh, it's very well done. It's done by the, the History Channel and it gives both perspectives, uh, the, the perspective that this is uh, a fable, a myth, a religious myth, a religious story, obviously important, but not real. And then there's the other perspective, which is, no, we have archaeological uh, findings of a mass mound that correlates geographically to what the Bible says to where the uh, Tower of Babel would have been, and it correlates to what Josephus was telling us. It correlates with what the local people have always believed. This is this kind of goes back to what we've been saying before in other podcasts that you should not discount what the, what the original inhabitants, the descendants of the original inhabitants of these places uh, believe certain things and areas to be because they would know. We wouldn't know. They would know. They lived there. Their right. ancestors lived there. So when they say, you know, the Tower of Babel was over there, why why should you discount them? 
there's no reason to discount them. Right. Uh, so with all this conflagration of information, correlation between the Bible, archaeological findings, and what the local population believed, uh, they were able to find this huge mound. I don't know if we can find it now, but I know back in like the, the um, mid to late 80s, uh, people have been able, and, and this one gentleman, I can't remember his name right now, was able to go out there and actually see this huge mound that was obviously not finished, uh, was destroyed over the centuries, but it was still massive. Uh, and it was definitely a clear uh, ziggurat type of structure. I think that's actually what I'm using in the uh, in the little ad thing for this. Okay. Because that's okay. the Borsippa thing that they say, well, that the locals say it is uh, uh, the Tower of Babel. Correct. Was right. So, so we do have the so we do have archaeological data. How you want to interpret that data? Well, that that depends upon you. I what what I'm saying and what you're saying is is that we have again a very high degree of correlation between the biblical text. The archaeological findings and the um, uh, the stories, the beliefs of the local people that have always lived there—Christian, Muslim, some Jew—that uh, have said, "Yeah, that's that's where the Tower of Babel is. That's what our fathers and our forefathers and our ancestors always taught us and believed, and that's where it is." Um, so you have this very high degree of conflagration between biblical, archaeological, and native population uh, uh, beliefs that raises a, that that gives a very high degree of credibility that this is probably one the location of the land of Shinar, two the location of the Tower of Babel, and three the actual ruins of the Tower of Babel. And if I may go further, four we have extra biblical texts, Sumerian, Babylonian that uh, make reference to it. So to say that it did not exist, I think, would uh, is actually on the other side, that it, on, meaning on the other side of, of believability, that it, that's, that, that it would be harder to believe that it didn't exist than to believe that it, that it did. You know what I mean? That, that we have more evidence that it did exist than it didn't exist. Yeah. Uh, Just so people know, too, when he says extra-biblical, it doesn't, it doesn't, just because it's not uh, in the Bible it does not mean that it's not true. We're basically just talking about historical records and, and other things like that. They're just not, you know, part of the Bible, but it doesn't mean they're not actually, you know, true or trustworthy or Correct. whatever. And, um, there, so, and again, I would recommend going and seeing that wonderful video from the History Channel that gives a, a very good and detailed account um, of, of the whole history of the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Nimrod. The ziggurat. Another thing that I wanted to mention: the connection with um, with Daniel in the book of Daniel, because now we have the 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 great exile of the Jewish people, and there's a reference in the book of Daniel as well as in the Babylonian clay tablets, which was very interesting. That when the exile happened with so when so when Nebuchadnezzar went and you know laid siege to Israel and and sacked it. That led to the uh, Jewish exile into Babylon. He took all of the holy and precious items and vessels of the Jewish temple after he destroyed the Jewish temple. This is the first Jewish temple, not the second one. 
He took all of the uh, holy and blessed items of silver and, glo- uh, and gold um, that were in the temple, the uh, you know the, the 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 bowls of sacrifice and the 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 utensils to cut up the sacrifices and the mercy seat and all that. And he took all of that uh, back to him. I'm sorry. And he took all of that back with him to Babylon, and he put all of the holy and blessed items of God's temple in the Tower of Babylon, um, in in the shrine that was in the Tower of Babylon. And uh, and we have reference to this in Josephus. We have, I think, a reference to this in Daniel and a few other, again, extra-biblical sources. And, and, and in fact, I th- if I remember correctly, that these items were given back to the Jewish people by King Cyrus when they when they were allowed to go back to Israel um, at the end of the uh, the Jewish exile, which I believe lasted for about seventy years, seventy two years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now, of course, what we know is not every Jew left uh, Babylon because a very sizable Jewish community remained in in Babylon. Um, both in Iraq and uh, modern-day Iraq and modern-day Iran, but the vast majority of Jews went back to the land of Israel uh, under the the command of King Cyrus, and uh, they rebuilt not only Israel but also the temple and all of the gold and silver uh, objects that were to be used in the temple that were previously taken. What what by that time was like you know. Four emperors ago, Nebuchadnezzar was the first in this timeline, and then the fourth one was Cyrus. So four emperors ago, King Cyrus gave all of those holy items back to the children of Israel uh, when they were re- when they returned to the to the land of Israel and rebuilt the temple. So and and all of these and all of these items were housed in the the shrine uh, or shrines, plural, and chapels on the um, Tower of Babel. Um, which is kind of wild to think of it, but that's where they were. Hmm. Um, and you know, and again, the 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 shrines and the temples were all ded- dedicated to pagan gods, uh, Belus and Nabu and Tasmatu, uh, Anu, uh, uh, Bel, which is kind of interesting because that makes reference to one of the apocryphal books in the in the in the Bible, Bel and the Dragon. Uh, that's a corollary to, uh, or in addition to, the book of Daniel in the Greek Bible in the Septuagint. Although there have been uh, Hebrew fragments of it found, um, I don't know if they've been found independent of the Dead Sea Scrolls or as a part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm not sure about that part, but I do know that there's been some Hebrew fragments that have been found uh, of the story or of the book, Bell and the Dragon, Uh, because again, Bell was one of their one of their gods. Uh, some people think that Bel is a corollary to the to the known Babylonian god of uh, En Lili and Lili. I can't even pronounce it. I, I'm going to spell it E N L I L. We don't know for sure, but there in the in the Babylonian language, I guess that there's there's a um, a linguistic connection between Bel and Enlil E N L I L with uh, uh, you know, it is. I don't know. I'm not a Babylonian uh, <laughs> scholar in languages. I'm just reading what uh, what what scholars in this area have written, but I'm not sure. Um, there is also another extra biblical source in the form of the uh, history 
of Herodotus, which again, let me back up. So maybe some people don't know who Herodotus is. He was the very first uh, historian, uh, at least in the in the modern Western sense of, 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 of historians, meaning that he took evidence of all of the written histories of the people around the, the known Greek world at that time, which obviously would, would include the Babylonians. And he um, organized it, codified it, and put it together in a historical book. Now, that's not to say that everything in Herodotus is historical, you know, because there's a lot of myths, fables, and legends early on in the historical writings of Herodotus. But for him, that was history. So, so he gathered everything. The last stand of the of the three hundred, you know, the Spartans, you know, with King Leonidas, you know, yeah. and the the famous phrase "Molon Lavin." That comes from Herodotus. You know, he took that history and he wrote it all down. He's the one that preserved the the ancient uh, poem of I forget the name of it now, but it's it's outside of uh, Thermopylae, and um, you know that says you know here's the uh, Spartans that lie dead, obedient to their laws. You know, uh, so Herodotus was the world's very first historian in a classical hist- uh, Western uh, civilization, scholastic sense, and he made reference to the Tower of Babel, which he called the Temple of Baalus, that he talked about these shrines and, and chapels that were filled with uh, golden objects, uh, uh, golden thrones, objects of great value, um, and a lot of people have then said that this was in reference to the Tower of Babel and to the holy items that were taken by Nebuchadnezzar and put into the Tower of Babel's shrine or shrines uh, that we read later on in the book of Daniel. Don't know. That, you know that's, that's the correlation people make. Do your own research on that one and, and see where it takes you. But at least we have physical evidence, archaeological right. evidence, uh, uh, items that we know did exist like the items in the, the second temple. I'm sorry, in the, the, the temple of God, not the second temple. Um, so there is a physical connection there. And again, if you were to be lucky enough or maybe brave enough to actually go to Iraq these days, uh, into these ancient Babylonian towns, uh, like Bursa, uh, like, uh, the, the other town I made mention of, uh, Borsippa, um, and you were able to go into one of the uh, museums that hasn't been bombed out, uh, you would see the clay tablets. You would see uh, pieces of ancient Babylonian um, walls and paintings and statues and structures. Um, and you would immediately uh, get a connection with the biblical text, with the, le- the world of the Bible. It would become alive to you. And that the Tower of Babel, uh, Tower of Babel would not be just a story on a page, but would be made real uh, in front of your eyes. Um, again, I would just make uh, my recommendation to watch that that exceptional History Channel documentary on the Tower of Babel, number one. I would also highly recommend getting a copy, and there's, there's only really two, maybe three now, uh, copies in English of the uh, histories of Herodotus. Um, and again, um, he gives a very good detailed description of the Tower of Babel, or that he calls the Temple of Baalus. Um, you know, he talks about it being, you know, uh, 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 you know, in square form, um, two furlongs, uh, 1,213 feet each way, in the midst of 
which was a was built a solid tower of furlong square, meaning a, a tower of 607 feet. Um, not the actual tower, but like the platform for the tower. It had six stages, a temple on top of it. So, uh, and that there were other temples around it. So Herodotus gives a very good historical representation of, of the Tower of Babel. So I would I would also recommend getting a good English copy of the histories of Herodotus. And again, they're all over Amazon and you know local bookstores, Barnes and Noble, etc. Um, those would be my two top recommendations. Um, and of course, if you can go online, there are. Uh, a number of places, especially those places that are associated with like the British Museum, that actually have the um, the clay tablets, the Sumerian and Babylonian clay tablets that talk about the, the Temple of Nimrod, Temple or the Tower of Babel, and it's in and they're translated into English from ancient Babylonian or Sumerian. So those would be my three recommendations. For more info on the Bible Dig Godcast, please visit the Bible Dig Facebook page, where you'll discover a treasure trove of photos, the latest archaeology finds, and our monthly Bible study. And remember, when in doubt, just get diggy with it. The what? Nothing. I was just doing uh, music. All right, music is always good. Sorry for interrupting. That's okay. That's okay. Verse 6. Do you want to get into it or do you want me to get into it? I'm sure you can edit that part out. Yeah. Uh. Cool stuff.